Already in the book of Genesis, we have discovered the beginnings. That's what the word Genesis means, the beginnings or the origins. The beginning of creation, the beginning of man, the beginning of sin, the beginning of judgment, and the beginning of God's plan to redeem a world that was laden by sin. The first phase of the book of Genesis is the creation phase. The next phase of the book of Genesis is the patriarchal phase. We have entered that phase in these chapters. We now begin dealing with the fathers of faith. Abraham being the first one. And then of course his son Isaac, Jacob, and then the twelve sons of Jacob. And we'll read about Joseph. And that will carry us all the way through until the children of Israel go down to Egypt once again. After Joseph is there, brings his brethren there, they remain in Egypt for 430 years, which will then kick off the next phase, the Exodus phase where God delivers them out of Egypt, takes them through the wilderness, and promises to them the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. Something that we're going to read about tonight is a promise to Abram. We have seen Abram as a man of faith and a man of doubt. We've seen his courage, how that when Lot was taken captive by the fellows in Sodom and Gomorrah, that it was Abram who was quick to do something about it. He didn't say, oh, serves Lot right. He wanted the best portion of the land. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And because he sinned, hey, I'm not going to do anything about it. But he did do something about it. He got 318 servants in his house, gave them weapons, and went after the five kings who had swept through the southern provinces and taken over the land. And so we see his courage. Then we see his communion as he meets Melchizedek. Back in chapter 14, he has really a great time with Melchizedek. By the way, it is the first mention of bread and wine in the scripture. And as we saw last week, they're put together in an interesting fashion as this priest of the Most High God meets with Abram and tithes are paid. It is also the first mention of the word priest in the Old Testament. Now that should, every time there's a first mention, by the way, in Genesis, I'm going to let you know, because it's important. It will set a precedent for us. Tonight we're going to see circumcision for the first time, and you'll discover that circumcision was not just a part of the Mosaic law. It came way before the law of Moses. The precedent was given to Abraham and his sons and his household and his servants. So anytime there's a first mention, you might want to just put a little mark in your Bible or put first next to it. One thing I love about the Schofield Reference Bible is how it gives to you the first mention of a doctrine or a word and the last mention and actually traces its thought throughout the entire Bible. But tonight, or actually last week, we saw how that uh, Melchizedek was priest of the Most High God and he said in chapter 14, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. A priest is one of the three major offices in the Old Testament. Remember them. Priest, prophet, and king. Those are the three principal offices in the Old Testament. 
and they all had different functions. A prophet, of course, was a representative of God to the people. He would hear God's word. God would say, thus says the Lord. The prophet would go before the people and deliver the message. A priest was also a representative, but he represented the people to God. As he would go into the tabernacle, make sacrifices, have prayers on behalf of the nation of Israel, he represented the people before the Lord. Then the king was the ruler over the people as God was to rule over him. Jesus Christ in the New Testament fulfills all three offices so that you don't need the same prophets that we had in the Old Testament. You don't have the kings like in the Old Testament and you don't have a priesthood anymore. The priesthood is abolished. Now every single believer is a priest unto the Lord. I love to tell my Roman Catholic brethren when they say, well, what is it exactly you do? Well, I'm a priest. You're a what? You're, I'm a priest. And this is my wife. This is my son. <laughs> and here's the fellow priests here. The Bible says you are a royal priesthood. All of you. You don't need someone special to represent you because Jesus Christ is your great high priest. He represents you to the Father. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us. Jesus Christ fulfills all of them. He was a prophet. That's his ministry past. He came and delivered the word of God to us. He was God's final word. He is a priest. That's his present ministry, representing us to the Father even tonight. And he will be a king. That represents his future ministry. We see all of them foreshadowed by Melchizedek. Now we come to chapter 15. Really, that's where we ended last week. We ended... Um, in verse 6, I just think we'll backtrack a few verses. Why not? Get the context. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. Now we remember from last study that a godly man has not only many friends, but many enemies. Abram had both. He had many friends because of what he had done in rescuing the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he made enemies because he went against five kings, and he was probably afraid. God says, don't sweat it, Abe. I'll protect you. I'm your shield and your reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one, that is Eliezer, your servant, shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Now, Abram was pretty old at this point. In fact, by the time Ishmael comes along in chapter 16, he's 86 years old. Around this time, Abram's 75 years old. He says, no, Abram, I know that you're an old guy and uh, you've got a servant, but you're going to have your own son, a natural birth. It's a promise that I gave you back in chapter 12 and I'm reiterating it now. And then he brought him outside and he said, look now toward heaven, count the stars. If you are able to number them, and he said, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in 
the Lord. And he accounted or imputed it to him for righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And so he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now before we get into that, I think it is wise at this point to put a marker in Romans chapter 4 so that we can refer to Paul's comments on this whole event from time to time in our study tonight. You may be interested to know that Paul, three times in his writings, uses Genesis 15, verse 6, as a premise statement for the way New Testament people are saved by faith. And so you might want to put a marker in Romans chapter 4. In fact, since you're putting one there, turn to it. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something of which to boast, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also declares the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. He's making a strong point. He's saying, if a person works for something, let's say you go to work and you work all week long, you have agreed upon a certain wage, when you get your paycheck, it's not an act of grace, you deserved it. You earned it. Now, if somebody walked up to you when you did not work and gave you a paycheck and said, here, here's a lot of money. I'd just like to give it to you. I know you don't work at all, but I want to give it to you just because I want to do it. That would be pure grace. I don't know many people that would do that. The point is that Abram believed God. He believed in the Lord, and at the moment he trusted what God said, a judicial legal contract, that's the word that is used to impute, to put to the credit side of the ledger. It was imputed to him for righteousness. Lord, I believe what you say. I believe your promise that you will give me a son. I believe in the covenant that you are established. Fine, then Abram, right now I'm declaring that you're a righteous man. Even though you haven't worked, even though you don't deserve it, it's an act of grace. Here it is. He believed in the Lord and it was counted to him for righteousness. One commentator defines righteousness. In fact, Dr. Wilmington, who wrote his study guide to the Bible, says that righteousness in its root in the Old Testament means to wear the right clothing. To wear the right clothing. God gives you his clothing. We are naked before God. We're destitute. The unfortunate thing is that man through history has tried to clothe himself. Have you ever noticed that? You think, well, you know, I'm going to earn my way to God. I'm going to prove that I'm worthy. And so we go about trying to be religious and do good things, and we feel smug about ourselves. Only one problem. God looks upon our righteousness as filthy rags, the Scripture says. 
any righteousness that you can procure on your own by yourself must be defined as self-righteousness. You've done it by yourself. It hasn't been given to you or imputed to you. You earned it. Therefore, you're self-righteous if you are working your way to God. When a person says, I will earn God's love, I will work hard to gain his favor, you are insulting God's grace. First of all, you are saying that I have the ability to become right in and of myself before the Lord. That's a slap in God's face by sending Jesus, his own son, to prove that you can't earn your way to God. It must be imputed, and it's an act of faith through grace. We'll see this developed more throughout this study tonight. Now, verse 8, he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It's kind of a strange answer, isn't it? God, how will I know? Well, bring me some animals. All right. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two, down the middle, and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. At this point, you're wondering, what kind of an answer is this? It's a strange section of Scripture, to say the least. Lord, how will I know this? Well, go get some animals and cut them up and divide them in two. What God was instructing Abram to do, Abram was very well aware, was an ancient legal contract. In the old times, when you went to court and you signed a contract, it's very different from today where you have a notary public or you have a lawyer draw papers or you have a certain seal affixed to it of the institution. In the old days, you would cut animals up and as you would divide them, you put one on half on one side and the other halves on the other side, and you and the other party would hold hands solemnly and walk through the pieces that have been cut so that in the presence of blood, you would give that verbal explanation of the contract signifying a binding oath that both parties are sworn even to death to fulfill the contract. It was something that predated Abram, and he was just following the legal custom of the time. God says, sit down, man. Get your pen. Get the notary public. Let's drop a contract. I'll show you how you can know. I'll make it legal. Sign on the dotted line. Now, what's really interesting is verse 12. When the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Now, it seems strange... <laughs> that God would almost paralyze the person he's making a contract with. Usually both parties had to be with sound mind and be able to walk in between those two halves. You had to be aware of what's going on and speak verbally the words of the contract, the agreement. Abram's groggy, man. A deep sleep fell upon him, no doubt from the Lord. Why? Because the whole issue here is that God is making a covenant with Abram and all of the promises are God's, not Abram's. Abram really has nothing to do with it. This is an unconditional covenant. The Abrahamic covenant that a seed would come and bless the world, that a land would be given to the Hebrew nation, was not a conditional covenant. It was unconditional. God just says, I'm going to do it. 
Abraham had really nothing to promise. Well, God, I promise this. He already believed God. It was accounted for righteousness. Now God says, this is what I'm going to do for you. 2,000 years ago, God made a covenant like this. He didn't kill an animal, though. He killed his own son. I wasn't there at the cross to witness this contract. But God the Father and God the Son were. And God sent his only begotten Son to die in my place. That whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's an unconditional covenant. So now I can place my faith in the cutting off of the life of God's Son, the shedding of his blood, and I get everlasting life. There's not a whole lot of me in it. There's no work that I can do to earn that. I just believe God and it is imputed to me as righteousness. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. That's a round number. Actually, they were there for 430 years. Where? Egypt. This is a prophecy of where the children of Israel will go as they go down into the land of Egypt sometime later after Joseph becomes prime minister. They were there for 430 years. The first 30 years were relatively peaceful. For 400 years they were in bondage as the pharaohs beat them and made them build their cities. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge afterwards. It will come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. From the very beginning, God predicts that the children of Israel are going to have a hard time. In fact, the scripture predicts that three times Israel will be kicked out of its land. This is the first time. They will go down to Egypt. 430 years later, they'll come back. The second time was when? Babylonian captivity. They were there for 70 years. God brought them back. The third time predicted was by Jesus Christ in Matthew 24 as he stood over Jerusalem and predicted that Israel would be scattered once again, which happened in 70 AD by the Roman legions. Israel has had a hard time and yet God makes an everlasting covenant with them as we will see in this chapter and in chapter 17. Verse 16, but in the fourth generation, after you're in Egypt, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That to me is a fascinating promise. Who are the Amorites? The Amorites are the folks who live in Canaan at this time. They were wicked tribes of people. God was going to expel them from the land. They had already been in the land of Canaan for 400 years and yet God says after the fourth generation, you'll come here for the iniquity of the people living in Canaan, the present inhabitants, has not yet reached the full mark on the cup. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Interesting principle of God. God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. Now God is patient. And this verse demonstrates God's love and God's patience mixed with God's justice. What he is saying is, Abram, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan, but I really love those wicked Amorites a whole bunch. I love them so much that I'm going to give them another, oh, four, five hundred more years to repent and turn to me. I'm really patient. 
I'm not just going to, in my wrath, give way to vengeance. I'm going to be very patient with them. My spirit will not always strive with man, however. In about four or five hundred more years, I'm going to come in, Joshua chapter 10 records it, and I will expel the Amorites from their land and give you the place that they now live in. The principle is this. God is patient, but there comes a time when His wrath must eclipse His mercy. And God is forced to judge. It's like the story I've often told about the young boy who visited New York City. He was there for the first week. He'd never been in such a city, and he didn't know the traffic and how the taxi drivers drive and the truck drivers drive. And believe me, it's an interesting place to walk around. And as he was looking around at the buildings, he stepped out in the street and didn't see a truck coming, and an old man grabbed him and pulled him back to the sidewalk. He said, young man, you better watch your way around here. Keep your eyes open because you could get killed in this city. And I suggest you keep your eyes open when you walk around. Let this be a lesson to you. He said, yes, sir. Three weeks later, after committing a crime, that young man stood before the same man who was a judge in the municipal court. The young man had committed some crime. And the judge, the same man who saved him, sent him to jail. The young kid said, wait a minute, three weeks ago you saved me. He said, well, that, that was then. I was your savior. Today I must be your judge. God will either be your savior or your judge. He wants to save you from your iniquity, like the Amorites. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there comes a time when people refuse to turn to God, and God's wrath will and must eclipse His mercy. Otherwise, God would not be just, would He? You know, this idea of God that people picture as some lightweight, wimpy milquetoast who sits up in the clouds and lets people get by with anything they want to because, well, they didn't know any better is ridiculous. Who would want to follow a God who did not judge evil? I wouldn't. What would you think if in the great judgment God said, now, you know, Adolf Hitler, listen, just a misguided youth. I know he killed six million people, but oh, come on. He was a product of his environment. I'll let him off easy. Come on in, Adolf. No problem, man. I'm not going to require their blood at your hand. Would you want to serve a God who would let justice be perverted that way? I wouldn't. God is forgiving, not willing that any should perish, but God must judge in order for him to maintain the attribute of being just, of being right, of being righteous. So 400, 500 years will pass before God will uh, judge the Amorites. Um, since you have a marker in Romans 4, there's a scripture I want to show you in Romans 2. Just a couple pages to the left. insight on God's character. Verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God was good to those old Amorites. He wanted to save them. Did any of them turn? Did any of the Amorites turn? One. Her name was Rahab. She was the only one who, though she was a harlot, believed in her heart 
that the God of Israel was the God of the whole world. And she trusted him. And she was saved. And the two spies made a covenant with Rahab. And she put out a scarlet thread from her little window on the wall of Jericho. And when they came in, God spared Rahab the harlot. And she's found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There was one who turned. Again, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And yet, so few do. Jesus said something staggering, folks. He said, enter into the narrow gate. For narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and there are few who find it. That has always puzzled me. It's always worried me. For broad is the way, and wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many people enter therein. Christianity is a minority. Oh, there are many Christians, and we rejoice in the Lord for the salvation of souls, the revivals that have occurred. And yet, Christians are still a minority. The disciples said, Jesus, will few be saved? Jesus replied, strive to enter into the narrow gate, for many will seek to enter in and not be able. Why is that? Why are only few saved? Is it because there's no room in heaven? God didn't build the place big enough? No, there's plenty of room in heaven. Is it because God loves to send people to hell? No, he hates to send people to hell. In fact, he'll send no one to hell. People must choose to go there before they get to go there. It's because men will not humble themselves and say, you know what? I am a sinner. I need a savior. And I turn to Jesus Christ as the only means for my salvation. You know what happens when you do that? A judicial act instantly. Righteousness is imputed because you believe by faith. But when you reject that forbearance and long-suffering of God, eventually his wrath will eclipse his mercy. And it came to pass, verse 17, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there was a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, a symbol of God's presence. God was making this contract. It was God who was giving the promises. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the, and uh, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Out of sight. God did it all. This promise has never yet been fulfilled by God. In essence, God promised the children of Israel would occupy 300,000 square miles of territory. Did you know that even at Israel's peak under David and Solomon, they only occupied 30,000 square miles? They have much less today. 30,000 square miles. That is one-tenth of all that God has promised. And so where does the land of Israel extend? Well, from the river Euphrates, which is Iraq, all the way through Syria, part of Syria, all of Saudi Arabia, down into Egypt, the river of Egypt, not the Nile River, but uh, the Wadi al-Arish, as the Arabs call it, the little river of Egypt that extends south of the Gaza Strip. From the Sea of the Mediterranean all the way over 
to the uh, Tigris-Euphrates Delta, some 300,000 square miles. It has never yet been fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. You say, I don't believe that. I believe that Israel forfeited all of God's promises. Therefore, the church is spiritual Israel. That's hogwash. If you believe in the covenantal system of God, for God will say, Abram, I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with you and your seed. How long is everlasting? Well, I hope it's forever because God gave me everlasting life. And if this is a temporary thing, I'm in trouble. God made an everlasting covenant with them, as we'll see in chapter 17. Chapter 16 is one of those chapters I wish, on one hand, were never in the Bible. Because it's the lowest point of good old Abe's life. I mean, he really blew it at this time. You think he was a man of unfaith last time. You haven't seen nothing yet. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, but I believe one of Abram's problems is that he was a wimp in his own home. He wasn't a leader. He listened to his lovely wife, which you should do, but he listened to ungodly counsel and didn't take it before the Lord and didn't keep the promise of God near at hand. It's actually the greatest blunder Abram ever made. And the repercussions of it are still being felt in the Middle East today. Now Sarai, which again remember it means contentious or head, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Where do you think they got her from? Remember when Abram went down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land? Brought Hagar back. One sin can lead to another as we'll see in this chapter. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Oh, blame it on the Lord. This is God's fault. We better help him out. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of head or contentious Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took her, Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. This is one of those classic examples of a very unscriptural way of thinking, and that is something my dad used to tell me. God helps those who help themselves. You know, my dad used to always tell me, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. You know, I used to believe the Bible said that till I read it. I've read it in at least five different versions. I've never found that verse. In fact, I found the opposite principle to be true. God helps the helpless. God makes covenants with people who are helpless. They're paralyzed. And our part is only to believe God, and God will impute it to us for righteousness. This is a classic example of thinking, you know, God made a promise, but he hasn't kept his end of the bargain yet. And I don't know if God's on vacation or what, but we better give poor old God a hand. Maybe he forgot about this. Maybe he's taken a long vacation. And instead of waiting for God's timing, which is just as important as God's calling and will, she went ahead of the Lord. You know, no one likes to wait. Do you like to wait on God? Do you like to wait, you who are single? for a mate from the Lord. It's hard, isn't it? You think, well, I know God has the right one for me, but you know, he hasn't brought her along yet or him along yet. 
But you know what? We're always waiting for something on the Lord. Always. It's a lifestyle. They that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. No one likes to wait. I remember when I was working at San Bernardino County Medical Center in internship. We had about 80 or 90 people in the emergency room almost all the time waiting to see a physician. And I'll never forget, it was late in the afternoon and one of the uh, residents was about to get off work and he played a very cruel joke. He knew that they were waiting and that people hate to wait. And so he went out into the emergency room. I think he must have gotten let go for this one. But he stood in front of all the people waiting, some who had been waiting for hours, and he said, in his white lab coat, how many of you are waiting to see a doctor? They all jumped to their feet. And he said, well, you've seen one. And then he walked away. Just trying to play a cruel joke. I'm sure the people didn't appreciate it. Still having an evil human nature, I chuckled at it back then. But uh, nobody likes to wait. Sarah had waited for 10 years. God made her a promise. You're going to have a kid. Great. You know, but after a while it gets very difficult when your husband week after week says, you pregnant yet? After 10 years of that it gets pretty old. It's like, you know what? I'm tired of this. Take Hagar, man. Have a kid. I'm already old. Don't rub it in. So going to my maid, perhaps I'll obtain children by her. By the way, you should know that this was very socially acceptable to do. If a wife could not bear children for her husband, they could use a surrogate mother. And it was perfectly acceptable in Semitic tribes in that time. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived... And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Though Sarai was adamant about her position and to be blamed in that she, by pressure, removed Abram from trusting in the Lord's promise, and she's to be blamed also because she's treating Hagar as an object rather than as a person, Yet, I do have to fault Abram. In fact, God will blame Abram, not Sarah. Sarai. I think that he was a wimp. I think that he should have said, Honey, I understand your frustration. I'm in this with you, you know. I'm an old man. God said that I'm going to be a father. My name is Abram. It means exalted father. Don't you think when I go to the office, I hate to hear the jokes that are leveled against me. But honey, we've got to trust the Lord. God promised me, last chapter, <laughs> that my descendants will be as the stars of heaven. I've got to believe Him. God made a covenant with me. Now hold on. God said this thing to me twice. He's got to come through. I'm not going to take this Egyptian. I'm going to wait on the Lord because He said from my own body, from my own loins. Well, it's yours, not mine, maybe. So take her. He should have just trusted the Lord, but he didn't. There is in many American homes today a male wimp factor. Men, listen closely. 
Your wives do not want you to be an authoritarian over them. They don't want you to whip them into submission. But they do want a leader. They want someone who will make decisions and be held responsible before God for those decisions. Husbands, Paul said, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, submit unto your husbands as unto the Lord in all things. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Does that mean that your husband will make right decisions all the time? Well, you know better than that by now. He's probably made a lot of stupid choices, hasn't he? I've made a lot of stupid choices. Should you submit to even stupid choices? Yes. Ungodly choices? No. Sinful choices? No. But if he before the Lord makes a choice that isn't right, you submit to it. You know why? God will hold him responsible for it. His neck is on the line, not yours. Yeah, but he makes such stupid choices all the time. Fine, let God nail him. Don't you do it. Guess what, wives? Let me let you off the hook. You're not responsible for how well your husband performs his role. You're only responsible, at least to the Lord, for how well you perform your role. And husbands, instead of coming to the counselor and saying, you know, I'd love my wife if she'd only submit, why don't you try loving her unconditionally like Christ loved the church and you find that it's a joy for her to submit? Because she'll feel warmed and secure in the bonds of the love that you have for her. And it could be that Sarah didn't feel secure, and so she's just kind of ruling the roost. Again, this brings up the principle after the fall, when God said as part of the curse that woman's desire will be for her husband. The same word means to rule over or to dominate. But you are to be the head. Now, I know that I'm walking on thin ice as I share that horrible word that I dare use in modern century, submit. Oh, that should have been out a long time. Hey, listen, I've done enough weddings. And I, when I ever share that word, I always look around at the congregation because I get shocking looks. <laughs> Don't you know that word's outdated? Not in God's vocabulary. Not in God's vocabulary. That's God's order. That a husband would unconditionally love his wife as Christ loved the church. It's interesting. The wife is never called in the New Testament to love her husband. I'm sure that she should, but God's commandment is to the man to love his wife unconditionally, sacrificially, and nurture and nourish him, taking the leadership to nourish the family spiritually, to build her up, to make sure she's doing well in the Lord, to take the initiative in the relationship. And then a wife is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. I have found that a marriage is either heaven on earth or hell on earth. Your choice. I've never found too much in between. I found people, very many people, frustrated, angry, sticking it out. It's horrible. They're just, oh man, I'm a, just got to live with this creep. <laughs> or I found it to be blissful, happy, wonderful. Hard, yes, but as they work through the past the point of pain, enriching, nourishing. Did you know, ladies and gentlemen, that a Christian marriage was intended by God to be a model for the world, to show the world the intimate warmth 
of relationship that God desires with his people. That's what Paul the Apostle said. He said, I speak as a mystery, but this is an example of Christ and the church, the bride of Christ and the bridegroom in a relationship together of warmth and intimacy. Does your marriage reflect that? Is it filled with strife, animosity, hatred? Or is it one in which the husband is taking the leadership and the wife is submitting as unto the Lord? Abram, I believe, should not have listened to his wife. That God will rebuke him for listening to his wife in this issue. Again, I'm not saying that he shouldn't listen to his wife. Oh, be quiet. What do you know? Just submit. That's not the idea. In fact, husbands, you need to know this. I know that every husband who's a Christian has memorized that part of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands in all things as unto the Lord. Hey, they've got it memorized. It's underlined. It's memorized in several translations. They may even know it in the original Greek. The word submit means to rank and order and salute. But I find that many husbands don't read the verse that precedes that. Submitting to one another. Ooh. You see, husbands, you are to be in rank and order under the Lord and defer to one another. Include your wife in these things. The problem with Abram isn't that he listened. It's that he took ungodly counsel. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Ungodly counsel can come from someone who is near and dear to you. Even someone in your closest family can give ungodly counsel. I'd like you to turn to Deuteronomy for just a moment. I want you to look at Deuteronomy 13. Verse 6 begins, If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom or your friend, who is your own soul, secretly entices you, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far off from you, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. You shall not spare or conceal him, but you will surely kill him. Now, I'm not advocating you do that tonight. This is confined to the covenant that God made with Israel in the wilderness. The point that emerges from this, however, is simply this. If someone gives you counsel that is blatantly contrary to the word of God, you are not to follow it, even if it is your husband or your wife or your parents or your children. I wholeheartedly reject this idea that a wife is to submit to her husband when he tells her to do ungodly, sinful things. I have heard pastors say, well, he's your covering. He's your husband. You've got to do it. No, you don't. I've had a wife say, my husband's telling me to go to the bars, topless bars, and get drunk with him. Should I do it? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. It goes for any relationship. Children, submit unto your parents. Obey your parents in all things in the Lord. It's a qualification. Is it in the Lord? If it's not in the Lord, do not do it. You have a higher master. You can't compromise in any of those things. I remember when my um, parents, 
approached me shortly after my conversion. And I came to know Jesus Christ as a personal Lord and Savior, made a commitment to Him. I knew that I was born again. I was going to this weird church down in Orange County, Calvary Chapel. Of course, the rumors were flying about it, open orgies. They get together and get drunk and take drugs. All of these rumors that were being spread. And I was growing in the Lord. Joy was increasing in my life, a freedom and a liberty, because I was coming into intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And my parents came to me and said, we don't want you to go to that church or go to that Bible study or read your Bible like you're doing around the house. That was hard for me because I loved them so dearly, but I had to say, Mom and Dad, I love you. And as long as I'm under your roof like I am, I'm going to submit to you. But you've just crossed the line. You've crossed the line, the line of allegiance between me and my Savior. And as long as I'm in this house, I need to submit to you, which means I'm no longer a part of this house. It's now time for me to leave. I'll be looking for my own place because I've got to serve the Lord. Though I love you and I want this relationship, I've got another master and another Lord. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother, wife or anyone else more than me is not worthy of me. You've set your hand to the plow. Don't look back because you're not fit for the kingdom of God. Abram should have listened to God. Should have said, honey, you're out to lunch on this one. I love you, but we're going to work through this together. And he didn't do it. And so Abram, oh, verse 5. <laughs> After the mistress became despised in her eyes, Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. Now she's blaming Abram. You know, don't be too hard on her. You're used to doing this, aren't you? Blame is a natural part of human nature. When Adam and Eve fell, what did Adam do? It's the wife that you gave me. It's your fault, God. You gave me this wife. You said it's not good that I should be alone. She blew it. It's the woman you gave me. All right, Eve, what about it, said God? It's the serpent. You know, passing the buck has been going on since the beginning of mankind. How often, men, have you lost something and you said, who stole that? Who stole my keys, my shirt? Honey, what'd you do with that? I didn't do anything. If you'd hang up your clothes and you put it in a little pile in the corner, nobody can find it. Oh, you probably did that. You know, it's just human nature. I'm guilty. Listen, it's a neat little pile, though, in my closet, really. So Abram said to Sarai, indeed, your mate is in your hand. <laughs> Again, not taking the leadership. Well, just whatever, honey. You know, whatever you want to do, really. You know, he just didn't want the hassle. He just thought, like, listen, she's dominating. She gets on my nerves. I'm just not, well, let her do what she wants. She's in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. At this point, again, we must just stop and take note that we must be warned. Be on your guard. It is human nature to take things away from God and put them in our own hands, isn't it? Instead of waiting on the Lord, we just kind of take things to ourselves. We want to put our fingers in the pie. We want to help God out. God isn't doing what we want Him to do at the time we want Him to do it, and so we get a little bit antsy. 
How many times have you found yourself counseling God even? God, I trusted you, man. I don't know why you let this happen. I prayed for this person for so long. You had your chance. Why didn't you do something in his life? Why? What's going on? And here you are, smart little you, upon the earth, having a counseling session with the Almighty God. You didn't work in my time frame, God. It's been 10 years, man, complaining against the Lord. And so what happens? We take it into our hands. I find this very, very often. It's a basic philosophy that is amiss among many Christians. The philosophy goes something like this. God has given me the goal. It's up to me how to fulfill the goal. Instead of waiting on the Lord for his perfect timing, just do it. Example. Somebody might say, you know, the Bible says that I'm to marry a Christian wife. So I guess the only qualification is that she becomes a Christian. So I'll just ask every woman I meet, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Oh, you're pretty. You might, are you a Christian? Oh, great. Will you marry me? It's in the Lord. Yeah, but is there a compatibility? Has God put you together? Are you going to be able to lead? Is she going to be able to be led? Is there a respect? Is there something in common? Is there a relationship really to build upon? You know, I find that same thinking in ministry oftentimes. Church leaders sit down to strategize apart from the guidance of the Holy Spirit. God's given us the goal. You know, like, sorry, he wants us to have kids. We'll just do it. doesn't matter how we do it. And often ministries will sit down to strategize and work out their strategy for the neighborhood, for the community, for the world, apart from the Holy Spirit. It's almost as if church leaders will say, Holy Spirit, listen, you've been a great guy. Thanks a lot for all your help and guidance for 2,000 years, but we've got programs now. We have strategies. We have professionals who've been trained to do this. You don't have to build your church. We'll do it for you. I don't think the Holy Spirit takes a liking to that. I think He likes to do the work. And when He does the work, it's great to just sit back and wonder and marvel and go, Wow, thank you, Lord. This is from you. It's nothing that man has concocted. So watch out for the danger to take God's work and put your hands on it. Get your hands off of God's work. Don't try to create something. Go with the flow. Find out where God is working and jump in the flow. Find out what He's doing. He's moving. I hear people say, God isn't working. Oh, open your eyes. Find out where He's working and get in with it, and it'll be exciting. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? Now did God ask this question to extract information that he didn't already know? No. He wanted her to confess, to speak up, to come face to face with what she had done. And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. So the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her hand. Oh, she didn't want to hear that, did she? When we find ourselves in a difficult situation, what is usually our first recourse? Run. Flee. I need a change of environment. No, you don't. You need a changed heart. Let's run. 
how many times God has no doubt repeated what he said to Hagar to many of his own people. Kids who buckle under the authority of their parents. I'm leaving home, man. Wives or husbands who decide, it's too hard in this marriage. I'm going to leave. I'm going to split. But in their hearts, they know God is saying, no, return and submit. Work it out. Reconcile. Love. I don't need to. I'm under grace. All the more reason to do it. Demonstrate my grace and the ministry of reconciliation. And the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. Now I want you to notice that God does not only make a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, which he does for the land of Israel, but also with Ishmael. God loves Ishmael. God loved Hagar as well. Behold, you are with child. You will bear a son. You will call his name Ishmael, which name means God will hear. Is a reminder to Hagar, God heard your misery, gal. You cried out to the Lord and he heard because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man and every man's hand against him. He shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. And then she called the name she, then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees, for she said have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lahairoi, well of the God who sees. Observe it is between Kadesh and Bered. If you ever want to find it sometime, let's go to Israel together. We'll show you. Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram named his son whom, he, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The lowest point of his life you have just read. He didn't listen to God. He listened to ungodly counsel. Now, is God going to let him get by with this? God just say, oh, no big deal. So what? Just go on. Well, yes and no. God will redeem the situation. But he was 86 years old the last time God speaks to him. And notice verse 1 of chapter 17. We will not read this whole chapter, but I refer you to its first verse. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. You know, you reap what you sow. He broke fellowship with God for 13 years. It was like Haran all over again. Remember when he was in Ur of the Chaldees? God said, Abram, get up, leave your folks, split, man. Go to the place I'm going to show you. But he goes to Haran with Terah, his dad, God doesn't speak to him for probably 15 years till finally Terah dies and he obeys God and goes into the land of Canaan. 15 unfruitful years. And now 13 unfruitful years. Above all else, seek God's fellowship. It's not worth going your own way, doing your own thing in rebellion against God to lose his peace, his presence, his fellowship. Is it? You know what I'm talking about, right? You've all experienced doing something you know isn't right and you break fellowship with God. You lose God's peace, the power of His presence. It's horrible. It's the worst, most frustrating feeling on earth. 
wasted years, unfruitful years. Of course, God will redeem the situation. So, some lessons tonight. Don't grab the work of God and try to do it for Him. God doesn't need your help. God needs your cooperation. God wants your submission, but He wants you to do things His way. Case in point, remember the children of Israel when they were, uh, went into the land of Canaan and they blew their horns and the walls of Jericho fell down? It was at God's command, right? God said, do this thing. It sounds really silly, but just walk around and talk and or don't, don't say anything. Be quiet and then blow the horns and the walls will fall down. All right. What did they do after that? They got prideful. They didn't consult the Lord. They thought, this is a piece of cake. Hey, let's take Ai. It's a tiny little town. In fact, let's just take a few hundred men. We don't need all of Israel. Josh, listen, kick back. We'll go take Ai. We'll let you know when we got it covered. They ran from the men of Ai. They fled before them, and hundreds of them were killed because they didn't consult the Lord and because a man had sin in his life named Achan who was in the camp of Israel. He didn't consult the Lord. God wants the thing done, but he wants it done in his timing and his way. I remember when uh, I wanted my first electric guitar. I was living at home, of course, in California with my parents. I was just a youngin. I wanted to play guitar. And um, Thrifty Mart at that time had a great $49 electric guitar, which I thought was probably the greatest in the world. You know, I was, I didn't know any better. It just looked really cool. Sunburst, ooh, wow. I said, Dad, I'd like to have that guitar. He said, no problem. If you weed the yard while we're gone, your mom and I are going to Hawaii when we come back, you weed the yard, you're going to have the guitar. Great, no problem. They left, and I looked at all those weeds. <laughs> they live on an acre and a half. And I decided, I knew what my dad meant when he said weed the yard. What he means is get down to the roots and pull it up by the roots. That's too tough. I thought there's an easier way for this. And I noticed his new lawnmower in the garage. And I thought, you know, I could gas this thing up and put the blade on its lowest setting, almost ground level. It'd get chewed up a little bit by the rocks, but it would take all those weeds out. And the day before he came back, I took the lawnmower out, weeded the whole yard. No weeds. Man, it looked clean. He came back. He said, good job. Well, I know it was hard, but I did it. He said, all right, I'll buy you a guitar. So we went out and purchased that new guitar, and I was pleased as punch until about a week later. And he noticed, looking outside the window, that those weeds started growing back. And he said, son, didn't I ask you to weed the yard? Oh, yeah, Dad, but I think they had kids, and they're coming up again. He said, wait, no, wait a minute. How did you do this? And I had to confess. He wanted it done his way, his time. I did it my way. And I really reaped the consequences. I had to pay for the thing <laughs> out of my own cash. The other lesson is don't put God on a deadline. I've known Christians who do that. Sir, I put God on a deadline. It's been 10 years. Take her. Have a kid. I'm tired of waiting. I've known Christians who've done that. You know, I remember in the early Jesus movement, when we first read the scriptures and we found that beautiful truth of the Bible that still holds true, the imminent return of Jesus Christ for his church. And I remember some Christians becoming weary. It's been three years already and Jesus hasn't come back. 
And I've seen some get weary. Man, I've been waiting 10 years. He hasn't come back. It's never going to happen. I've been trusting God for this promise for a long time. Maybe I just won't follow him anymore. Don't you put God in a deadline. Oh, but God's late. No, he's not. You know, I hear Christians say, if the Lord tarries. That's baloney. He'll never tarry. He's always on time. He knows when he's coming. Don't worry. It's, he's got a timetable all mapped out. He's just very patient. The third lesson we should learn before we close our Bibles and go home tonight is that we ought not to be swayed by our culture. It was perfectly acceptable for Abram and Sarai to do what they did with Hagar, but it was not spiritually acceptable. God never endorses polygamy. He spoke about it. He allowed it, but he never endorsed it. But the point is, they were swayed by the culture around them. They let the culture put them into a mold. Everybody's doing it, man. Why don't we do it? The children of Israel, after a while, got tired of God directly over them and prophets speaking to them. And so they came and they said to the prophet Samuel, we want to be like other nations. We want a king to rule over us. Samuel wept. God said, don't weep. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me that I should rule over them. You see, they wanted to be like everybody else. Who likes to be the minority? Who likes to be the sore thumb that sticks up among all the fingers? We like to fit in. It's hard to be a minority. It's hard to be the few. We want to fit in. We want people to like us. And unfortunately, many Christians try to become just like the world. Well, we've got to be like them so they'll accept us. I think it's great to be refreshingly different. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, excuse me, Romans chapter 12, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Something that we brought up this morning, didn't we? Or as the Phillips translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. The Bible says we're to be different, to be separate. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Hard to be a minority, but it's best to be right and be righteous and listen to the voice of your Lord rather than the voice of the crowd. Father, we thank you tonight for the heritage that we have in Abram. We see his mistakes, his flaws, but we also see, Lord, that he believed God and you imputed it unto him for righteousness. Before he did any work, before circumcision, that outward symbol of faith ever came into play, righteousness was imputed the moment he believed, before any work was accomplished. How we thank you, Lord, that tonight, if by faith, we place ourselves, our trust in Jesus Christ. We can know eternal life. We can enter into a covenant with you. Lord, some of the terms that we've used tonight, the way we've spoken about you, is foreign to some who are present, even in this room, because they're relational terms, and some have only known you at a distance, but not in an intimate relationship. We pray, Father, that men and women would come into your fold tonight, by faith 
in Jesus Christ. As we're in this attitude of prayer and meditation, as you think about your own life before the Lord, it could be that tonight you have come, but you have never personally asked Jesus to come and save you from your sins. You've never personally repented. That is, changed directions, changed your mind. And asked Jesus to forgive you of all of your past. You've never said, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to acknowledge you and I'm going to follow you. I want to know you personally. Maybe you've never done that. Well, the Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God to those who believe on his name. Tonight we want to give you that opportunity. It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it, for you to leave here tonight having never accepted Jesus Christ. Or maybe we should rephrase that, having never been accepted by Jesus Christ because you've never by faith trusted in him. But we want to give you that opportunity. 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 But we want to give you that opportunity.